0: The reading we heard from the first book of Samuel, I I find a charming story. Here are the first steps into his calling of the young boy Samuel, who was to become the great prophet and judge of his people. Samuel, as a youngster, is given a message from God which is a heavy one to pass on. He has to tell his master Eli that his family will suffer a punishing disaster because of his son's behavior, which he, Eli, had failed to restrain. God had already given Eli this message, but it appears he had not taken it on board. Now Samuel was called upon to tell Eli how things really were. No wonder Samuel, the young apprentice, as it were, was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But fortunately, Eli was ready to receive the news. Reading between the lines, you get the sense that because Eli knew this already but had ignored it, the fact that God had taken the extreme measure of enrolling the young boy to speak up made Eli realize that this was a serious message he had to listen to. It's not an uncommon experience today, that sometimes it takes the voice or the actions of a child showing things as they really are to make adults realize that they have been deluding themselves. Prophets, of course, as this example shows, are not mainly called upon to forecast future events with no basis in the present. Instead, they are called upon to tell the truth, tell the people and tell those in power principally the reality of what is happening now and what will be the most likely outworking of that situation unless change is made. The biblical prophets in their developed form always had an ethical dimension. They called things as they were in moral terms, telling about the injustices of their society, calling out about the suffering of the poorest and most vulnerable people, And of course, they were not always given a favorable hearing by any means. Many of the powerful then and now do not want to hear what their activities or what their failures to act are doing to the weak and the poor who are on the fringes of their concerns. During last week, I saw an interview on TV of some children who are living in poverty They were part of a group of children and young people who had been to Parliament to explain to some of the MPs there what it's like to live in poverty. What truly struck a chord with me was how one of the girls, whose mother is a chronic epileptic and therefore was acting as a carer herself, described how it's impossible to concentrate on lessons at school when you haven't had enough to eat and you don't know where the next square meal is coming from. A report of a visit to the United Kingdom by Professor Philip Alston, United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights in November last year, found many examples of a worsening of life's opportunities for large swathes of our fellow citizens since the financial crash of 2008-09. I'll just read you one of the things he wrote. The costs of austerity have fallen disproportionately upon the poor, women, racial and ethnic minorities, children, single parents, and people with disabilities. The changes to taxes and benefits since 2010 have been highly regressive, and the policies have taken the highest toll on those least able to bear it. The government says everyone's hard work has paid off, But according to the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, while the bottom 20% of earners will have lost on average 10% of their income by 2021 as a result of these changes, top earners have actually come out ahead. Or in another uh, comment, life expectancy rates have stalled in the United Kingdom, with the latest statistics showing a sharp drop in the annual improvement that has been experienced every year since the records began, and an actual drop for certain groups. The report concluded that this situation need not have been as bad as it is if alternative social and economic policies had been followed. And even now, there are better choices that could be made. For example, particularly regressive measures could be reversed including the benefit freeze, the two-child limit on child benefit, only partially lifted recently, still applicable to all future families, the benefit cap, and the reduction of the housing benefit for under-occupied social rented housing. The really shocking events, however, were what happened after the UN report was published, Like the Church of England's carefully researched report Faith in the City in the 1980s, it was simply rubbished by some uh, government ministers. The rapporteur was accused of political bias, as I might be, for highlighting this issue. And instead of taking on board that there are very real problems of financial hardship for millions of people in this country, and particularly in regions mostly a long way from London and the South East, Government ministers, including the Prime Minister, chose arcane and very particular statistics to try and claim that poverty and inequality in this country have been reduced over the last eight years. But it's not only international bodies who are calling out the government and society for failing to care for the most vulnerable and marginalized. Only this last week, a coalition of charities working locally and nationally gave a briefing to the House of Commons Work and Pensions Committee which shows that tax and social security cuts since 2010 have breached the rights to social security and to an adequate standard of living. And this means that the UK is infringing the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights and the European Social Charter, both of which have been voluntarily subscribed to by the UK and will not be affected by Brexit. UK levels of state benefits are not sufficient so as to ensure an adequate standard of living. Families on benefits now have to live without 40% of a required minimum budget and there are one and a half million destitute people in our country. It can be shown and it is shown in this and other briefings, research and reports that tax and social security policies since 2010 have not been justifiable in terms of the goals they were meant to achieve. They have not been proportionate, and the effects have been discriminatory. The weight of local government funding cuts has fallen on people at risk of harm, discrimination and disadvantage, and benefit sanctions have been harmful and largely ineffective. It's not enough simply to rubbish these reports or to ignore them, or to impugn the motivation and integrity of those who do the research, and seek to establish the truth about the effects of policies, which even if well-intentioned in some respects, are having terrible effects. The saddest thing to me about those children and young people who spoke on TV last week was that they seemed to accept that this was their lot in life, and they had so little sense of the rights and dignities due to them as citizens of a prosperous and democratic nation. That is an outrage. Eli recognized that the voice of God, the voice of truth, was being imparted to him by this child, Samuel. Would that the social and economic policymakers of today in this country hear those who are speaking the truth. And in this time of confusion and division in our national life, and particularly in Parliament, I'd like to conclude with a prayer which has been written by um, the Archbishop of York, John Sentamu. If I can find it. All oh, right, here we are. Let us pray. God of eternal love and power, save our parliamentary democracy, protect the High Court of Parliament and all its members from partiality and prejudice, that they may walk humbly the path of kindness, justice, and mercy, give them wisdom, insight, and a concern for the common good. The weight of their calling is too much to bear in their own strength. Therefore, we pray earnestly, Father, send them help from your holy place, and be their tower of strength. Lord, graciously hear us. Amen.